Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from John chapter 5, verse 1 through 18. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, which has five porticos. In these lay many individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus, because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is still working, and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in this moment of silent reflection, perhaps the most silent and reflective we've been all week, we run from the past, or we fear the future, but the hardest place for us to be is right here, right now. However we find ourselves in this very moment, secure or insecure, feeling connected to other people around us, or feeling lonely in a room full of people. 
whether we're feeling quite well about ourselves and our accomplishments and our ability to really pull things together in this season of life, or we feel like we're coming undone. Help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is created in your image and likeness. A beautiful child of God with dignity and honor. And at the same time, we wander. We get fractured. We become disintegrated. We come undone. And you see us in all of our complexity and the ways we get it and the ways we don't get it, the ways we've done well and we're really, really pretty good people, the ways we're not good people at all. You see it all and you know us and you love us and you give yourself to us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see that your love flows to us like an ocean that we can't even find the depths of. Greater love than we could ever imagine. Wrap us in that love now. Inspire us by your Holy Spirit to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. And so teach us, Lord, that our lives may be transformed and this world may be renewed. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our Epiphany season. And Epiphany, again, means revelation or realization. You know, you say, I, I have an Epiphany. I actually don't like my boss anymore. Or, you know, you realize something, an Epiphany. And so we're in the season of Epiphany, and the big idea is that Jesus helps us to realize something about God that we wouldn't otherwise know. Jesus reveals something about God that we couldn't just figure out by looking at a beautiful sunset or the powerful waves of the ocean, but rather he is the very revelation of God. If you go to the supermarket down the street right now and you're checking out, you'll see Life Magazine, this, is it Life or Time? One of the magazines right now, right in your face, it's just an image of an icon of Jesus asking the question in bold letters, who do you say I am? And I'd make the case, it's the question that's on everybody's mind. I mean, you might not phrase it that way, but in all of your search for connection, in all of your search for significance and for meaning, to know that life is not just meaningless and you're here for several decades if you're lucky, and then it's over. If he really is the image of the invisible God, then how you answer that question, who do you say I am, changes everything. Now, it's interesting now we're in the third week here of, of this season, of the series, and we're only in John chapter 5. There's 21 chapters in John, so we're about a quarter of the way through the text, and they're already trying to kill him. Do you note that? So this is one thing we catch very shortly, is that it would have been unthought of in Jesus' day and place to have an encounter with Jesus, to meet him, and just walk away saying something like, he's a good moral teacher, or he's one of many, or he's interesting and I'll kind of steady him from a, different, from a distance and kind of nod toward him, but I'm not really going to let him transform anything in my life. That was one reaction you just do not see from anybody that met him. C.S. Lewis, the scholar and theologian, wrote, and we see this here, Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. And so C.S. Lewis says, someone who's claiming to be equal with God is not the kind of person you can say is a good moral teacher, unless it's true. Someone who's claiming to be equal with God is either lying and he knows it, so you shouldn't say he's a good moral teacher, or he's a lunatic and he's crazy, and that's not someone you should follow. But if he actually is the Lord of all creation, then you should give your whole life to him. Who do you say I am? How do you answer that question? 
So in the time we have, let's just consider this scene from three angles. The water, the man, and this controversy of the Sabbath. Okay, first, this pool, the water. It's a very interesting place, actually. It was in Jerusalem. John mentions it was near the Sheep Gate, and it had five porticos, or porches. It was the Greek word stoa, so it would be colonnades with a roof but no walls. It would be like a local pool that you can go to and you can get in the shade sometimes and get in the water sometimes. And this is an interesting place because uh, in the 18th and 19th century when historic modern criticism was coming in vogue, this was one of the chapters of the New Testament that theologians and scholars would go to to try to either prove or disprove the historicity of the Bible. And they would say things like, you know, whoever wrote this obviously didn't know anything about the architecture of the time. You know, five colonnades would be something like a five-sided pool, and there's never been known, you know, a pentagram pool in ancient Jerusalem. And so they started to use this passage to disprove the historicity of the New Testament. And then, archaeologists dug up the pool, and they found it. It was underneath a church that actually had been built there to memorialize this very scene. And it was quite as described with five colonnades. Now, so here's the irony. Scholar F.F. F. Bruce, in his, uh, one of his most important works on the historicity of the New Testament document, says the irony is that the absence of that pool was used to say whoever wrote this probably didn't understand about these things. They were distant from the time that they actually happened. But that pool was probably destroyed when Rome crushed Jerusalem in 70 AD, meaning anyone who came much later than Jesus wouldn't have even known the pool existed. So the very thing that scholars were trying to use to disprove that these things actually happened becomes one of the keystones of saying you can actually trust these documents as reliable. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Because if the Bible is only basic instructions before leaving earth, then it really doesn't matter if these things happened or not because the moral of the story would be the same either way. If it was just a bunch of Aesop's fables to David always beats Goliath, the weak one can beat the strong one, and so if you're feeling weak, just buckle up and you can become stronger. If it's just stories about morals, then it really doesn't matter if this happened or not because the the moral would be the same either way. If Christianity was like many other world religions that says God helps those who help themselves, and this is about what you can do to achieve your salvation and union with God, and it's this this instruction manual for you, then it still doesn't really matter if these things happen. Why does it matter that these things happen? Because Christianity is not about what you can do to make yourself right with God. It's not if you follow the moral code for enough days in a row, then God will smile on you and accept you finally. Christianity is what God has done to break through for you and me in time and space. God has entered into our story and invaded it with irresistible grace. Absurd grace, amazing grace, overflowing grace, because Christianity, the gospel, is about what God has done for you. And we come to this passage and says, you can trust it. You can trust him. Jesus says, I come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. All you need is need. And I move toward you. So this scene is a picture 
of that grace. I mean, can you imagine this man? It says he's been there at the pool of this, with this ailment for 38 years. That's longer than most people lived in antiquity. And we don't know if he was born with this condition and he was 38 years old, or if it struck him and if he was in an accident in his 20s and he was in his 50s now. We don't know. But we know he's been there a long time. He's been so afflicted for so long, he's just a permanent part of the fixture at this local pool. He's the guy that always sits over there. When Jesus saw him, it says Jesus was informed about his ailment. People knew. They knew that was the guy. Nothing's ever changed for him. Nothing ever will change for him. A picture of stagnation to the point where he's accepted it. He's internalized it. And Jesus went to him. You, you know, do you know that one line there? Jesus saw him. Where do you need to know that Jesus sees you? All of you. So Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? And the guy begins to interact with Jesus how you and I interact with God often. He begins to ask Jesus to partner with him to help him do the thing he wants to do right? He tries to get Jesus to be his co-pilot. He tries to buzz Jesus into his office to get a little advice on the side or a little Hail Mary help when he needs it. Do you want to get well is the question. And he goes, well, actually, this is how I'm going to get well. I want to get into the water. Would you please help me do the thing I want to do so then I can have the outcome that I want? That's how we interact with Jesus so often. We, we might not say, I need you to get me in the water. We say, I need you to get me this career. I need, to get you, I need you to get me this raise or this promotion. I need you to get me this health outcome or this spouse or these kids. And Jesus says to this man, I'm not going to get you into the water. I am the water. You think you need that to be made well. You really need me. What would it look like in all of the places that you go to justify yourself, to tell yourself you'd be okay, if you could actually hear his voice say, I'm with you and I love you and I know you and I will care for you more than you could ever imagine. Can you imagine a significance and a stability? The water is standing right in front of you. Jesus says, I am living water. But let's look at this man for a little bit longer. Notice how Jesus initiates, right? Last week, we saw the royal official that went to Jesus. The royal official's child was hurt, sick, dying of a fever, all of that. The royal official who commands everyone and asks for nothing because he tells people what to do, what did he do? Found Jesus and begged him to help. But in this scene, Jesus finds the man. Jesus sees him. Jesus goes to him. The man doesn't even initiate. The man actually doesn't exhibit a ton of faith. His job is to sit there and welcome Jesus. All the initiative is on Jesus. Here's the principle. Here's the principle that Christianity presents to you and me. The spiritual life is not so much your journey of finding God. It's the realization that God has been looking for you. 
We don't find Jesus. Jesus finds us. When Jesus says, what's the kingdom of God like? Kingdom of God is like a shepherd who lost a sheep, and the shepherd goes after the sheep. The sheep's job, that's us, by the way, is to get lost. The sheep's job is to not be able to feed itself. The sheep's, the sheep's job is to end up in danger, and the shepherd goes after the sheep. And here we see Jesus, the good shepherd, going after this man, even in his apathy, even as he's giving up. Where do you need to see that Jesus is pursuing you right now? And here's why this is so important. Because the reality is, even the most spiritual of us, who's probably one of you, it's probably not me. I'm not the pastor because I'm the most spiritual. I'm the pastor because it's my calling, just like you have your calling. But even the most spiritual of us don't always pursue God, right? There's this part in Romans chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul writes, no one does good all the time. No one seeks after God all the time, to which we say, yeah, of course. And what he's saying is not so much, you know, you're not interested in spiritual issues or you don't want to know God. It's that when it really comes down to it, no one's really all that interested in a relationship with the God of all creation who has authority and power and dignity and justice that is uncorrupted. We don't want that. I think on one hand, because there's, deep, there's kind of the seed or the poison of what I will call the great lie that is infused into the DNA of every human being. And that is the lie that was echoed from the serpent to Adam and Eve in the garden. God cannot be trusted. God said, don't eat the fruit. God just knows that if you eat the fruit, you'll have a great life. And God doesn't want you to have a great life, so don't trust God. Take matters into your own hands and do it now. You can't trust God. And that lie has been poisoning us ever since, and we take matters into our own hands, making a mess of our, of our lives. And so we say, don't give over control to God, and so we don't. We either remake God in the image that most suits us, so here's one diagnostic question for, is that happening in your life? If the God you worship likes all the people you like and hates all the people you hate, you're probably not dealing with the God of all creation. We either remake that God in our own image, we relativize God to be a loving grandfather who looks down on us, but really can't help us very much. Or a cruel, angry tyrant, like an angry parent who's just waiting for you to mess up so he could smash you. And so we remake God in our image, or we just run from God altogether. And God does something about our inability to trust God. Our inability to see. He does something about our apathy and our denial. He gives himself to us, moves toward us. He says, not only I'm the water, but get this. It mentions that that pool was near the sheep gate. What was the sheep gate doing in Jerusalem? Remember the temple? Remember what happens at the temple? On the day of atonement, there would be the scapegoat brought in. The sins of the world would be put on this goat and it would be sacrificed as a way of saying that the sins need to be gone, they need to be done away with somehow. And in the beginning of the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking across the courtyard of the temple, he says, behold, 
the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And now here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, at the sheep gate, telling this man and you and me, not only I am the living water, but I am the one who will take away the brokenness of this world. All of your unbelief, all of your flailing and floundering and inconsistency and untrustworthiness and injustice and the ways you judge others and the way you judge yourself, the damage you do to others, the damage you do yourself, I'll take it all upon myself. And on the cross, Jesus deals a death blow to death itself. Three days later in the resurrection, showing that the final word on this world is not darkness but light. It's not death but life. He's the living water. He's the Lamb of God. He's also the Sabbath in person. What was the point of the Sabbath? Why are they so mad about the Sabbath? A couple reasons. See, the earliest narratives of creation say that God created the world in six periods of time, and on the seventh, God rested. Now, for us, when we think of rest, we think rest is when you're tired, and so you stop doing a lot of action, so your body can be rejuvenated, and you can go do action again. But what does God need to rest for if you can't tire God out, right? What does an omnipotent being need rest for? And really, that's a cipher for God was satisfied. God was delighted. It says after each day of creation, and God blessed it and said it was good, and God blessed it and said it was good, and then on the sixth period, when God created man and woman in his image and likeness, and God blessed it and said, it is very good. And so God could rest in delight. You know what's so ironic about our culture? Is we have more entertainment, more options, more comfort than ever, and we don't know how to rest. Isn't that wild? I remember when email was first starting to become a big thing in the 90s, and you know, if business magazine or whatever said, now that communication is so effective and so efficient, we can finally move toward a four-hour work week. And we all laugh. Because the reality is, you have all your emails in your pocket. You can work anywhere, so therefore you work everywhere. Anxious, exhausted, and so Jesus heals this man on the day of rest. There, there were like 39 rules of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, and most of them were relating to things you could carry or you couldn't carry. You can't carry a chair around the neighborhood, but you could carry the chair if someone was sitting in it. I don't know how they did the math there. That was just one of the rules. And this man is violating Sabbath by carrying his mat. And that's why it's so important in verse 12 when the officials go, so who told you you could do that? And he goes, uh, I, th I think it was that guy Jesus, right? He's this is, goes back to the very first blame shifting in the Bible when God comes to Adam and says, who told you that you could eat that fruit? He goes, the woman told me. And then he goes to Eve, who told you you could eat the fruit? The serpent told me. And on and on down the line, the blame shifting goes. This man's just been healed by Jesus, but he doesn't want to upset the powers that be. Who told you you could do that? It was him. It was him. And Jesus comes back to him, and there's this very cryptic moment where Jesus says, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen to you. Which, spoiler alert, no one really knows what he meant by that. But it could have, he could have been suggesting that, you know, the way that you were living, the decisions you were making are part of what contributed to your condition right now. He could have meant that. He does say in John chapter 9, when there was a man who was born blind, and his disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it doesn't work that way. So he's not necessarily saying if you do bad things, bad things happen to you. 
We don't know. But here's what we know. Jesus is saying to this man, I've healed you physically, and I care about that. But you have a much deeper sickness you're not even aware of. Your physical condition was nothing compared to your spiritual condition. It will do you no good to be able to run and skip and dance if you're still far from the God that created you. I care about you, mind, body, and soul, and I want to heal all of it. Who do you say Jesus is? He's saying, my father and I are doing our work even now. I am the living water. I am the Lamb of God. I am the Sabbath rest. In other words, God is at work, which means you and I can rest. Which means that even in the places of your life where you feel like you're moving backwards, you're stagnating, you're not sure where to go, God is at work in those very areas, and so you can trust. You can rest. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Where do you need rest right now? In a moment, we're going to have a, this offertory time, and that's a time of reflection for you to think, what would your life look like if you really took Jesus up on this offer of rest? What if you approached your relationships not from a place of frantic anxiety, but from a place of centered identity? Not needing to extract something from the other people closest to you but coming as a giver? What if you were able to look at your job, not as the thing that divines you or proves, you know, proves your worth, but rather as an opportunity for you to do something that matters well? And as we do, we are recreated. This is, the whole theme of this is that new creation is being birthed in the midst of the old. You are being transformed. And as we do this together, the world is being transformed. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now that you would give us a moment of clarity and honesty with ourselves and with you to allow you to walk to us like you walked to that man at the pool and say, do you want to be made well? Help us to see that you move toward us even now and we can trust you. Help us to see that because you're at work, we can rest. And as we prepare to come to this table, to be fed and nourished by your presence, would you now convince us of your great love for us and send us out to be your agents of renewal wherever we go? We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.